Hey, hey. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the second episode of The Good Thief. My name is Joel Jackson. I am your host and compare. And if you haven't joined us before for this three-quarter hour of power, welcome. The Good Thief is a premise that I've created and kind of been sitting on for a while where basically I sit down with the multitude of people that I've been lucky enough to know or have worked with or just want to know more about and share their perspective, their point of view and and where they're at at this point in time creatively and personally. Now my second guest for The Good Thief is someone who was all like has inspired me to do this. He is one half of Tofop. He also has his own podcast called That's Awesome. Um, he is star of the silver screen both on Blue Healers, McLeod's Daughters and also on Home and Away and more recently for Stan on the Wolf Creek 2 series with John Jarrett with directed by Greg McLean or created by Greg McLean. The man is a producer, a writer, he's making a comic book, he's an industrious little nugget. I'm really stoked to be sitting down with him today to have a bit of a chat and we're sitting in a white hotel room Pretty basic, very nice, nothing, you know, still nice. Um, and on the wall next to us is the 12-year-old's impression of the girl with the pearl earring. So without further ado, please let me introduce to you our wonderful guest and a very special man, Mr. Charlie Clawson. Mate, thanks for coming on. Hey, Robin Joel, how are you? I'm good, Welcome mate. to this strange uh, <laughs> apartment. Uh, my wife is in Melbourne working, I'm just down keeping her company and yeah, this... Uh, the feature piece in the living room is an interpretation of the girl with the pearl earring as if done by a 12-year-old. Like, and it's huge, too. It's, it's not There's small. There's more on the frame than the actual painting, I would say. It's, uh, yeah, that thing is pretty illustrious. I walked in and thought, this is a really stylish hotel room. I, th- I mean, hotel, me- like in general, I walked yeah. in and was like, I'm lost. There was like deer antlers and curtains hiding the lift. And I was like, this is kind of really Germanesque and burlesque. Maybe it's a thing that they have to have. Do you know, it's, it's almost like... You know, the perfection is not beautiful, right? You need a bit of imperfection <laughs> yes. to create. Like, so yes. it's a very stylish building, but you just want to take the edges off it with a disgusting, <laughs> ridiculous, terribly painted <laughs> ripoff just to kind of complete the whole look, right? The picture and kind of go. And there's also those hotels here that are also doing off those commissions that they have. They get artists of residence to paint things that then go into their hotel rooms for a certain amount yeah. of time and that, and that kind of works Like the out. art series of hotels. The art series of, yeah, That's totally. It, yeah. yeah, exactly where I was going with that. I was like, where else have I been a part of that and seen that? Speaking of perfection though, I mean, this AFL season can go anywhere. There is no perfect team this season. I've been sitting here trying to figure out when I can see my Eagles again in mm. Melbourne because I'm here for a while. But no one can put their finger on the bloody football. No one can... Well, who's going to win? Oh, yeah. Richmond. I mean, I think that's they're by far and away the best teams. This okay. Year. Yeah, yeah. I know easily. Like, I think that. Look, the nearest challenger would have been, I, I would say, GWS. Are, are yeah, a good okay. chance. I, I went and saw them uh, live last week, and you know they are amazing to watch. But I just think, in terms of the factor of MCG, hundred thousand yeah. supporters, and I have never seen a team of men. Who love each other. So much. Like those guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Will and I we talked about we have a football podcast called Two Guys, One Cup. You should check it out. I love that show. (laughs) (laughs) I love that show. But we were talking yesterday about the Tigers' love for each other and we said it makes us jealous that we don't have – I don't have friendships that close with my good mates. No, let alone like – Will and I have never hugged each other like that. (laughs) Everyone's having – that's why there's so many supporters that have come onto the Richmond band. They just beat Collingwood for the most supporters. Yeah. Ever. Signed up. Yeah. Like – 
But you're right. I've only got like two mates that I could hug like that. Yeah. Let alone like 24 <laughs> dudes and be like, everyone else has got my back. Like, We've I, had a great year. I, and if you haven't listened to the show, the uh, Two Guys, One Cup, you know that Will and I were pretty hard on the Eagles for the first two seasons of this show. We like to make – we describe them as the McDonald's of the AFL. They're like <laughs> the evil empire from the West. But – I think that that was a problem. That was, for me, that was a hangover of the sort of 2005, 2006 yeah. era Eagles. Yeah. That super cocky, arrogant, wishy yeah. era Eagles. And I never really took to that team because I didn't like a lot of the personalities. Yeah. But this era of Eagles, I love. Yeah. You've got so many great personalities in that team. Nick Nat and JJK. And, and even Mark McGovern Carr. and like McGovern. the way he handles himself on and yeah. off. And Shannon Hearn. Shannon Hearn. Oh, Shannon, is Shannon Hearn, his name, I didn't even know like yeah, two months like, ago. Most marks in the AFL to date kind of thing. <laughs> oh, I think. Really? You know, yeah, dude. As it like... Full back. Wow. Unbelievable. Like, uh, and Will Rioli lost about 30 kilos to get into the get into the squad and has... 30 kilos? Yeah. Really? No, she, I mean, this is my mum telling me things. Right. So, like, <laughs> okay, my well, mum also tells yeah, me I'm pretty in the house. <laughs> 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 no, I've got things going for me. Thanks, mum. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> take things with a grain of salt. But speaking of which, mate, that's how we kind of... I mean, I, I've known of you through acting circles for a while and we're both... We share Morrissey management and we've kind of been going around the traps. Um, and then when I really... Like stopped and had a moment. I've always admired you, but fuck, when I stopped and had a moment and went, the man can speak and the man has got a massive heart was when we did the Men of Letters. Right. For um, the Women of Letters down in Melbourne and we yeah. spoke about... We were asked, uh, Charlie and I, along with a great group of other men, were asked to write a letter to the women that had changed our lives. Um, and I tell my mother and, and my sisters and the, my grandmothers that I love them all the time and I can't hug my sisters, they don't like me. <laughs> like getting close no, like, no, like, my sister's been yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they don't do it uh, so I wrote it to the idea of my future daughter um, which was great by the way oh thanks man it was yeah. this kind of thing of being like I think there's a lot that men can do in this day and age but we all have a long way to go and I hope that by the time that she's here uh, it, it, you know she can walk into an amazing world and you wrote it to your mother yeah and that was one of the most touching beautiful things to hear mate I mean I, I think we're blessed to have fellows like you in this creative industry that are not only very masculine and know exactly what it means to be a man, but a good man and an emotional man. I mean, do you find uh, being in this industry, not only does it ask a lot of you to be emotionally connected to those things and, and be vulnerable, but how do you go about protecting yourself? Um, I don't know that I... I don't. I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that is. I don't. I, look, I, t- to be honest, I never really thought of myself as an emotional man because that was just what it was. My father passed away when I was quite young. Right. When I was ten, um, you know, I've got two older brothers, but they were both out of the house. You know, by the time I was five or six years old. Was it old. a fair age it, difference? Yeah, because I got okay. eight brothers and sisters, so I was the youngest. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Big family. Um, so I was predominantly raised by women. So I had six sisters and mum, and so. Uh, I was raised in a house where, look, it's not that, I don't know, I I sometimes wonder if I have a masculine side. I'm assured that I'm I'm quite masculine. (laughs) But I've always like identified, not identified, but I've been very comfortable in the company of women, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't feel feel, um, a a pressure to be a certain way or, or be a certain kind of man. I just talk to them as if I'm talking to... Anyone. Yeah. And it's funny because I went to an all boys school uh, uh, that was that has a reputation for being quite, for lack of a better word, chauvinist. You know, okay. that it's, a, it's a, an elite boys school and it's, it's you know, very clicky and it's the boys club and there's an old boys network and there's all this kind of stuff. Right. Know, and, and whether or not th- that's true, that is the, that is the impression of, of that kind of school. And so when I started there, I kind of saw the difference. 
between guys who just hung out with guys and didn't know how it, it was all it was kind of this combination of fascination and fear with women <laughs> where, yeah no i know do you know I, what i mean yeah i totally understand you totally yeah where you. they kind of like you know my wife sort of pointed out to me when she came to australia the difference between like and you also Jim is from Scotland. Scotland. Okay. And when she first came to Australia, she said she noticed the real difference between like Australia and the rest of the world. Where she went to a party, and all the girls were on one side of the party, and all the guys were on the other side of the yeah. party. It wasn't this sort of like commingling thing. Yeah. And I think that maybe in Australia there are some fairly traditional gender um, uh, uh, roles yeah. that we sort of adhere to, but. I just always hopped between the two because I went to this all boys school, which was all like you know footy and you know all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then my home life was very um, female dominated, and, and to an extent, if any of my sisters had a, an issue with men, then I became the representative of all mankind. So I'd have to hear about it. Why are guys so fucked, and why do guys do this? So you know, I, I spent a bit of time in like gender law school where I was defending yeah. our. Yeah, like, Hang on, hang on. Let me, let me, let me. I'm sure all guys. Not all men. Hashtag not all men. Before it was yeah, cool. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Because um, I'm. I grew up with two older sisters. Yeah. Um. And my mum is very much the voice of the household. And not to say that my dad isn't a quiet man, but my mum is. She grew up with two older brothers who both, uh, two younger brothers, being my pardon, yeah. who both played for Claremont, in the Waffle. So they're huge men. But she held her own, and she's got a fake tooth from like a front tooth is false from when. One of the brothers punched it out. Oh my god! So she can like, if you swore on her household, it was a fist to the back of the head. Yeah. <laughs> like it, it, that, she ruled the yeah, yeah, house, yeah. man. And uh, me and dad, like when I when I moved to Sydney, I, I'm kind of the same of picking up what what Gemma was saying. Of I really felt that divide of a wanting to actually go and approach someone, a female, mm. and go, "Oh hey, how are you?" And but not step on toes, but also being so infatuated and fascinated by them that I, but also feeling that if I went and sat and talked to a woman over a man, that a man would sit there and kind of go, oh, well, what are you afraid to talk to me? Or what's his kind of deal? Yeah, yeah. What's that? But I, I also think that I heard a quote the other day that was really interesting. It was when a, a man was called effeminate yeah. for being sensitive. And he responded by going, hey, look, you can't, you can't associate that quality. like the, You can't associate a female quality with a man who is sensitive. That's... Um, that's my quality mm. as a male. I, I'm allowed to be sensitive. I'm allowed to have these things. That is inherently yeah. There's no there's no gender. There is no gender on, on sensitivity and no. on vulnerability. There's no. But I think um, well, it's funny though. But there there seems to be rules about how you can express it as a man. You know what I mean? Like men are meant to kind of like you know be tough with their emotions and like mm. you know it's kind of like you know you can. Like I always laugh when I watch a, you know, like a, something like the footy show or whatever, right? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, uh, football identity will have passed away. And they'll be talking, you know, uh, about, you know, how much that person meant to them or whatever. And, and they always do this thing where they go, yeah, yeah, it, uh, yeah, it, tapped it, the it, desk. Brought, it uh, brought a bit of a tear to the eye. Uh, just a bit of a tear to the eye. And it's like, <laughs> so they're not actually experiencing the emotion they're describing it. Yeah. They're like, yeah, you know, uh, you know, uh, yeah, it brings a bit of a tear to the eye. And it's like, well, yeah, okay. Sure, we can all identify what it looks like to be sad. Yeah. But to actually roll with it. And the thing is, you know, even these most masculine men, you know, watch their team lose a grand final. Or, you know, they watch fucking Shawshank Redemption or something. Yeah. And they will cry. They Maddie, will cry. Maddie, and, but they, they give themselves certain rules where they can be emotional. And I'm like, fuck that. Like, yeah. What, what was the thing? It was like, I am, there was a great uh, stand-up uh, female comedian who got up and was like, Oh, I, I can't calm down. I'm on the Pacific Ocean. 
Like, you don't tell the Pacific Ocean to calm down. And I, I was like, yeah, fuck. Like, we're all this rolling big bag of bones. And yeah. There's a lot going on. Like, you can't actually put a finger on when you can. Well, I had this conversation with a mate yesterday. Um, we've been friends for a long time. And he's a very chill dude, like, 90% of the time. Just big very, Lebowski chill? Like, no, not, well, not quite Big Lebowski. But, he, you know, he doesn't get his feathers ruffled very okay. often. But I've been with him where... If he senses an injustice or if he feels wronged, yeah. then he fucking expresses it. Like right. I remember one time years ago, he and his wife were up visiting Gemma and I and um, the, our girls were at the bar and he and I were sitting and this girl came over and started chatting to us and, you know, she was kind of being flirty or whatever but there was, you know, nothing going on. And yeah. then when our wives came back, she made some kind of catty comment about, oh, so that... And he did not stand for that. Right. He was like, how dare you disrespect? And he like, but he really stands up in like express. I don't do that. Like I'm always right, benefit right. of the doubt, peacemaker, whatever. But I sat down with him yesterday and I just sort of like apropos of nothing was like, you know what I really admire about you is that you're not afraid of your anger or volatility. Like you're chill most of the time. Yeah. But then when you feel a strong emotion, you'll express it and he won't carry on with it. It won't be something that like festers or he obsesses over. He no. just... Like, it, he just releases that pressure valve, you know, and then goes back to normal. And I think part of the reason he is so chill yeah. is that he allows himself to ride that wave of emotion. Whereas what I've tried to um, – the, the way I have gone through my life is I've tried to suppress everything right. and control everything and, and, you know, sort of keep a – even keel like i try and be diplomatic about every situation which isn't actually being honest no yeah about how i feel and i think that you know the, to go back to the question of like being comfortable with your emotions yeah i think i am yeah but whether or not i'm comfortable expressing that yes like i think there's certain emotions i'm happy to let you know when like i'm nervous or anxious upset but i'm not great at expressing anger yep or frustration or whatever i tend to internalize that i don't kind of and I think there's reasons for that. Yeah. But I'm getting better. You know, I've been to therapy for, you know, two or three years and I'm doing a lot of work on myself and meditation and stuff. Right, and I'm getting right. really better at understanding that you can just – just because you feel the thing yes. doesn't define, you know, your life thereon. It's not a, it's not a permanent change. No. And also – you feeling something is just literally you feeling something. You still have the ability to step away and go, oh, my God, this is me feeling really, like, jealous right now. Oh, this yeah. is me feeling like, you know, someone just condescended to me and, I'm, and my back's getting up. And yeah. so because there is that temptation when you feel like the store clerk has given you a bit of lip or whatever. You want to just be like, hey, fuckhead. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, and I think there's a way you can do that. You can express yourself and say, hey, don't disrespect me in a yeah. way that doesn't escalate the situation but allows you to, to at kind least of kind of release a bit of the valve exactly and, and stand up for yourself. Yeah, but I think it's really hard because it's such a fine line. Like I, I, I have these neighbours at the moment who are super passive in, in Sydney. In Sydney, okay. who are super passive aggressive. Just so if they ever listen, I was they like, will never listen, listen to this. <laughs> but it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting test for me all the time because they, they're just angry people and they flip out over everything and right. un unreasonably so. Like I've never I've never had issues with neighbours in 20 years of, you know, renting properties. Yeah. But these guys just like they have problems with noise, they have problems with visitors, they have problems with car parks, everything's a fucking issue. Yeah. And the other day I came home and I was like closed the gate and I was going up the stairs to my apartment and he came out and was like, you slammed the gate. And I was Bullshit. like... Bullshit. Yeah. And um, I was like, fuck. okay. See, that's the instinct, right? Yeah. And I, that's where I went at first where I was like... <laughs> and then I was like, okay, so what's the problem? He's like, you slammed the gate. And I'm like, wasn't aware that I did that. I'll try not to slam it next time. 
he wanted to go on with it. He was like, you do it all the he time. He took it further. Yeah. Oh, he, for God's sake, mate. But this, but this is where it became kind of like interesting because the temptation for me was to meet his fire with fire. Yes. But then the minute I observed it almost like third person, took a step back and said, oh, wow, like this is me getting my back up about something. Yeah. I was then able to go, oh, let's see what his issue is. And so I just kept asking him. Yeah. And the more I did it, the more detached I got from my own emotional response because I could see him. It was all about him. Him. Clearly, yeah. he'd had the a shitty day. Yeah. You know, maybe burnt his steak or whatever. Yeah. And then, you know, he thought he recorded the football, but it wasn't. And it and wasn't. Then he and then he fucking gate going. That was the last straw and he came so, out. Now, listen, mate. Yeah. And he wanted me to fight him. He wanted me to argue so he could yeah. release some of that pent up aggression. But then when I was like, okay, sure. Let's, yeah. Let's work on a solution. I'd have. Because I, I, I pulled out in front of a guy uh, at a roundabout in Sydney. My last day, I was selling a motorbike. It was a very stressful kind of sad day. My motorbike's been my best friend for yeah. like six, seven years in I Sydney. Understand. I had two major accidents on it and it was like my lifeblood, you know. By the way, I'm just pouring a cup of tea. If you yeah, I was like, that was me I'm just taking a we piss. I left the hotel room <laughs> and I followed Charlie to the bathroom. I was like, Charlie, wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Um, the but, rumors are true. <laughs> but... So, so, but the roundabout was full. There was no one for this guy to go. He was coming from the opposite direction and wanting to turn into this lane that was full. So even if he got onto the roundabout, he would just be blocking out traffic. So I thought, he's not going to go anywhere. I'll go. So I went. This guy sped up to hit me, like is to go, you weren't even fucking paying attention, man. And he went and had a go, and I kind of braked and stopped and saw him, and he had a big eye, and he just, he went nuts, and he started flipping off and kind of braked right next to the car and then like just kept kind of bunny hopping in a close, getting closer oh to the car. So I pulled out and just kept apologising, wound my window down, and he pulled up right next to the car, went to get out, and before he could get out, I got out. And I just went, leaned into his car, and was like, I'm really sorry, mate, I beg my pardon, I don't, like, it was just a big accident, I'm sorry, it's been a very long day, and da da da. And mate was fueled. Like, mate was mm. definitely not just having a bad day. Mate was geared this way. Yeah. And was about to flip his shit and come over and bash me out. Like, yeah. it was hectic. Yeah. Guys swearing, oh, fuck off, I'm going mental. And it blew, like what we were saying before, that ability to just kind of step in and go, hang on, mate. Because I, I, I'm with you on the point of, I'm, I hold grudges. Mm -hmm. I find it really hard to express myself and actually go, I have a problem with you and I have a problem with this instant and what you're doing to me in this instance. But I'll hold on to it for two years. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I, I, my mates, Let that fester. Yeah. My mates know, uh, my close mates know that I have what I call the dead box. And if someone hurts my heart, I'm a very loyal kind of guy, but if someone hurts my heart or um, does something that I don't deem as being respectful or loyal or um, true to what the idea of friendship or lover or things like that is, you will go in the dead box. Yeah, right. And I'll, like, keep you, but I'll, like, I'll put you there and will not talk to you ever again. Even if I see you or do things out and about in public. Like, yeah. So I'm the, – the thing with anger, because my dad's not an angry man. Yeah. My dad's a very wise uh, – he's a primary school principal. He's very considered. He's very quiet. If, if I had a problem I – had, I had big problems as a kid growing up. Like I, as a 17-year-old, rolled his car three times. Wow. Two days after I got my driver's license. Right. Um, and then had, he drove me around the next day so I could apologise – to all the like the mothers and fathers of my mates that were in the car with me. Holy shit! What was that like? Pretty hectic. Yeah. Um, and that, I when I was last time, I went around and thanked those guys again, and and it was really emotional experience to go. If you guys had taken anything further, I wouldn't have been able to do what I do today. Yeah. And your ability to forgive and also to move on, but then trust me to be back in your lives 
as a young man was really special. So they all accepted the apology? Totally. Everyone, wow. everyone, the only, only one group of those four guys that were there, their parents were like, we'd like to see the car. Just to, the car was a write-off. Like it was uh, smashed. Anyone um, injured? No, only me, mate. I, I smashed up my elbow because I had my elbow out the window when I was driving. Lucky, lucky to lose your arms. So we're lucky no one ever, you know, no, no one, like just anything. Yeah. But so my dad didn't even raise his voice to that whole experience. And that car was his dream car. It's like a HJ60, like 1986, oh, no, beautiful old, like, yeah, I was that arsehole. Um, oh, why would you have kids? <laughs> <laughs> so we can I ride mean, your motorbikes and crash you. Yeah. I'm just sure your dad's mind went back to conception. Yeah. He's like, oh, oh, you, <laughs> just, just a little differently. Yeah. And even the phone call, like I rang, I'll never forget, like I, I rang them. We're in the middle of the desert. It was like two o'clock in the morning. I rang my dad's phone or the house phone at that point in time. Um, and dad answered, he goes, where are you, mate? Are you okay? And in the background, I hear mum going, ah, what the fuck's he done? And like that was the difference in our household. Like, my dad did not raise his voice. Yeah, right. I've never seen the man. Do you think that's why it worked with your parents? Because they had sort of like one hundred Yeah, man. I've never, I've never seen them raise their voice at each other or even get in an argument. They are so yeah. floridly in love that it's, it's beautiful. That's great. It's wonderful, man. But And it's also interesting to see that I find it hard to deal with my anger or expressing some sense of ownership over stuff because um, the men that I was surrounded by in my life are very quiet men. Mm. Um, and I feel like that extension of a man when a man gets angry because you see it and it's really intimidating. Yeah. Especially when you see a guy that's like six foot five or something losing his shit and you go, Jesus, yeah. like that's a force. I mean, as an actor, like I, I always find I've got no prob- problems. Um, yeah, as acting, I don't find it a problem. Yeah, it's weird. <coughs> It's almost like I feel safe in that forum to really access anger, frustration or whatever. But in my real life, I feel like there's consequences to that. And I think, I, I don't know what it is. Like, my father, he was a very anxious man, angry. Like, he just, you know, he had a lot of shit going on in his life that, you know, made him un, unhappy and, and worried. He was a very sensitive man and, you know, he put a lot of pressure on himself. And I think that... He was a kind of scary dad. You know, there's certain friends of yours growing up that, you, that, that dads are just a little bit scared of because they always seem pissed off. Like yeah. that, that was my there's dad. It's like inherent buzz. Yeah. And you're like, just, fuck, I don't want to mess not, with that. Not the warmest kind of individual. I mean, he was beautiful with us, like kids at times. But I also know with the older siblings, you know, there were some issues. You know, he struggled with being a father. Like it's not, right. you know, like uh, every person struggles with, you know, different roles in his life. By the time he passed away, I think he did his best to you know, resolve all that. Like, you know, before he, he died, he wrote all of us a letter, like a handwritten letter. Just Personally sort of, each to... Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, I've still got it. And it's beautiful. Oh, wow. and, and, and you know, some of the letters were apologies. Some of the letters were like, you know, endorsements or, you know, letters of support. Like, Have you, know, you all read the, each well, other's the, letters? Well, when he was dying, you know, because he died over a six-month period and when he went into a coma and then was on life support and the doctor said, look, you know, the, uh, the end is coming. I remember... Sitting around, we all sat around the table. We all read our letters from Dad. It was really fucking hard. Wow. Um, because I, you know, my older brother, um, who's gay, that you know, and came out in the uh, early eighties, late seventies, early eighties, and I just don't think felt very supported at the time. And yeah, and he and Dad had this fairly fractious relationship um, because of it. And then when this happened, I know that you know they they wanted to repair. Well, at least. My father wanted to repair that relationship and he wrote my brother this beautiful letter basically saying, look, you know, I think 
I realised when you were born and I saw the way your mother looked at you that, you know, she was never going to look at me like that and part of me was jealous. And that's not uncommon, you know, wow. for a father to feel or for a parent to feel because, you know, that bond between mother and child is pretty, is pretty strong. So, like, it was intense and, and, I, and I think that that stuff kind of kind of lingers and, and when I think about, um, you know, my own... The reason why I think I do try and temper my emotions is that... So, in the, over the course of, um, you know, my life... So, when I, was, when I was two years old, my second eldest sister died. She committed suicide. Yeah. When I was ten years old, my father passed away. Then my grandmother passed away not long after that. And then, you know, my mother passed away quite recently. And so, as a child, every, you know, four or five years... I was exposed to a fairly life-shattering yeah. thing. And so the family I was born into was a family that was grieving because at the age of two, when I just started to form my impression of the world, I saw, a, you know, this is stuff I've only recently discovered through therapy, but, you know, going kind through of, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that it was a family that were muted in a way because all of them were grieving, you know, this tragic loss of a 18-year-old girl. Yeah. Uh, all of them dealing with it in their own ways and they were all, you know... I don't know if you've ever lost anyone, but no, mate, I haven't. But grief is this um, takes many different forms, but there is this kind of cloud, this numbness that overtakes, where you're just sort of going through life, you know, with part of you missing or, or not quite making sense. And yeah. I think, in a way, to protect yourself, you just don't you you level out because you can't commit emotionally to anything really because you just your heart's not there. Your heart's too sore yeah too damaged and so i think that you know so that was the family i grew up with you know from the two until 10 and then as a 10 year old i started to stick my head out into the world again and then my father dies and i see that Christ. come back so the two earliest lessons i had as a child were don't get curious about the world because you're going something scary is going to happen your whole yeah. world's going to get turned upside down so i think subconsciously i started preparing myself for another disaster happening at some time. And so I would mute all my emotions. And so I would be very diplomatic in my approach to things. And I wouldn't get angry about stuff. And I would right. always try and... And my idea was, well, if I just stay at this level keel, no matter what scary thing happens gonna go in my on. life, I'll always be able to... And so that reached a, you know, a crisis point about three... Not crisis point, I don't want to be dramatic. But it reached a... Uh, uh, a changing point, like a, a changing point about kind of three like years ago where I had a fairly significant anxiety attack. Right. And I didn't know what it was happening to me. I just, like, it was like a physical, emotional breakdown. And, and you know, luckily my wife, um, you know, who's experienced with, with depression and recognising depression and um, she saw it for what it was. And yeah. she was like, at the time my mother was dying and, you know, I was working a fairly stressful full-time job and... yeah. You know, um, had a fairly public profile. And I just was feeling a lot of pressure. And so she was like, I think you need to go see someone. And it was the best advice I ever got. I got the psych evaluation done by my GP. They said, yeah, looks like you've got anxiety. So they um, hooked me up with this uh, therapist. And I just got lucky. First time, first lady I saw just got on like a house on fire. Yeah. And she was very good at sort of taking me through all these things, which, you know, we are... We are the sum total of our parts. Yeah. Every experience, you know, we've had into our life to this point. And yep. emotionally, you don't even know the things that have happened in your life, you know, the protections yeah. you've put up. And so her showing me that stuff, it doesn't cure anything, 
But having an awareness of why you react the way you do then enables you to start taking steps towards... So, for instance... No, no I'm, I'm totally honest, and I'm... Uh, keep going, sorry, yeah. I interrupted, but yeah, go, go Yeah, on. so, for instance, the reason I started seeing her was I said, look, my mother's dying, um, I'm worried... You know, when my father died, that was a very traumatic experience for me. Yep. And I'm worried that this is going to be another hugely traumatic experience. Yeah. And I want to I wanna figure it out. I want to I outsmart it. I want to get around it. Like yeah. I wanna, and she was like, I can't help you with that. <laughs> She's like, I'm not She's sure. She's like, it's going to hurt, you know. Yeah. It's going to hurt. And you just have to be um, prepared for it to hurt. But she's gone, here's the good news. He's like, it hurts, but you know what? It passes. And that yeah. may not sound great right now, but... You need to understand that all those things that you fear and all that energy you put into imagining the worst possible scenario. It's like when yes. I used to be a producer, the night before a shoot, I'd be up for fucking hours, just like running every all single possible scenario. Possible on the kind scenario. Of fuck so if that happens, then I'll do this. And if that, yeah. and then of course you get to set and you know something goes wrong, but it's not the thing that you planned for anyway, and you take care of it. So it's <laughs> yeah. fine. So that was basically her instruction to me is here's what you need to realise. You're a fucking grown man <laughs> who's got to this stage of his life pretty okay yeah. dealing with a whole range of serious issues that have come and gone and you've got past all of them fine. Yeah. This is be, will be another thing that you'll get past fine. What I want you to do though is actually embrace the experience and as opposed to trying to outsmart it or hide from it right. or you know avoid it with drugs or alcohol or whatever people do. Yep. Just open yourself up to it and be honest about the experience. And it was the best advice I ever got because once I sort of had that awareness, you know, I mean, I was spending a lot of time with mum anyway. Yes. But then I started going, okay, mum's dying. Yeah. I'm being honest about this. Let's maximise all this time. And so, you know, the last day that mum and I spent together, although incredibly sad is yeah. also one of my most cherished memories because I remember sitting there watching her, you know, Gemma and I spent the weekend with her, we did all the cooking and cleaning and we watched a movie and yeah. I remember sort of watching, we had, had this movie on and I was sort of sitting back watching her watching this film and she looked so ill, you know, a stage four breast cancer, no hair, lost a lot of weight, like really, really looked emaciated and I was watching her and I'm like, fuck, like, you know. This is it, but I'm, I fucking love this woman so much. Yeah. Like, all I'm doing right now is just sending her love. And when we actually said goodbye, it was a transcendent experience. You know, I um, I don't know how to explain it other than it was incredibly sad. Yeah. Because I was literally saying goodbye to her. Yeah. But she seemed ready. You know, she wanted this. She had made the decision to stop pal uh, to go into palliative care. Okay. And stop the chemo. Okay. And she wanted it. You know, um, look, there's nothing nice about when the body packs it in. Like, no. it, it is an incredibly hard experience. But to die at home surrounded by your kids, you know, that's pretty good. Yeah. My father didn't have that choice. You know, he had to die in a hospital, you know. And yeah. so it's hard to uh, – of course, you know, I'd love to have another day with her. But we all have to die. Yeah. And she went out on her terms. And, you know, that, you, that women of letters thing that I did, the reason I wanted – to talk about her and I, know, and I know writing a letter to your mother isn't particularly original but I learnt so much through that experience, through that last year of being with her and, um, you know, that, that last sort of, you know, moment of being with her yeah. taught me so much that I was only able to learn because she died. If she hadn't have died, if I, I wouldn't be in the mind space, I wouldn't, no. I wouldn't have been receptive to this amazing gift that she's given me but now, like... 
oh my god like it's amazing it, it i i almost i describe it to people like in uh, empire strikes back when yoda dies <laughs> and you know fades into the force void or whatever yeah, it yeah, is yeah, yeah you know it's like that's what i felt happened to her like wow. she just passed into like the force void and and passed her knowledge and her jedi training yeah to me and the amazing thing about my mother too is like i grew up sort of taking her for granted and she's always in a meditation but don't we all like i mean i don't you know i love my folks yeah. desperately but i know when i say goodbye like i cry when i give my my, my dad a hug and say goodbye because i i know how much i love that guy well that's awesome and for something to happen or to go on or you know we have we chat for like an hour and a half every weekend right just about shit but yeah. you know that at the back end of it it's a guy who, you know, his his father's not well and has been bedridden for quite some years now, and he's like he's understanding that that is going to go one day, and there's this beautiful relationship that we get to foster, and I'm as an older man now, young man, kind of going, fuck, like I'm fostering the guy who's going to be the grandfather of my kids, yeah, like, and I can see him with my sister's kids and go, that man is an idol, like, yeah. and look what he's done for all these children that he's raised through his primary school and yeah. just. You're right. You have to open yourself up to those kind of things and go, well, whatever it is, good or bad, when it comes and when it doesn't, like it's yeah. it's going to be. Because if you if you uh, same thing as when something bad happens on like a um, work wise, yeah. you know, if if a film or something drops out and you just go, oh well, fuck it, I'm going to go to the pub and get smashed or have a big problem and like it's all going to blow away. Charlie's going to the bathroom again, just quiet. <laughs> <laughs> the Couple trickle trips. at the end was great. <laughs> um, but so something will drop away and then you can kind of just go into the void and discontinue your efforts in chasing something down or or whatever. Or yeah. you can turn that space into a new opportunity and either travel, begin to write, meet a new friend and start kind of collaborating and doing something else. Like mm. this podcast itself was born out of the fact that something had fallen through and I've gone, okay, well, what do I do that I like to do, chat to people yeah. that then can become at least an extension of what I love and so yeah. I can stay in the same and I think for wow. actors especially, <clears throat> that's the number one thing is you've got to have lots of things going on because it's an incredibly... Because you're juggling a fair few things because you've just... Yeah. You guys got funding for Blackwood. Well, we've had development funding. Development We're funding. going in production funding this year. Which is the film that uh, you've written, I've written and, and, and Gemma's going to direct. And you're producing? Uh, no, no. Okay. I'm an executive producer. But right. I was a producer at one stage, but then I just, I, it just got... Too much. <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. So, so tell us about so Blackwood. Is, uh, tell us about the film. Is it? Uh, well, I don't want to tell you about the. Plot I don't. Okay, about I don't tell it. about it. Um, but it, I can tell you, it is a. Uh, it's a. It's a thriller. It's a. It's a. It's about um, set in Australia after a significant environmental crisis, right? In which uh, Australians have been pushed into refugee camps, and it's about a girl searching for her brother. So it's kind of got. Wow. Like, yeah, I, I think the genre is cli-fi. <laughs> <laughs> Is it like a climate, Charlie Clausen sci-fi? No, no, climate change. Oh, I love it. Sci-fi, cli-fi. I was like, did you just invent a genre no, around no, your no. name? We didn't know. Because we, we submitted it to, um, it got shortlisted, the screenplay got shortlisted at its, uh, for the Sundance Lab last year. Mate, congratulations. I know. We didn't That's get in. Huge. But we got shortlisted, which was very exciting. But they, uh, they do a coverage report and they send it back to you. And when they sent it back, the guy who done the coverage report said, you know, this is an intriguing cli-fi premise. And I'm like, cli-fi? Oh, cli-fi. Yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah, okay, mate. For sure. Yeah, cool. Now, is, how many scripts have you written? Uh, in, like in my life? Or yeah, like mean? totally. Like, uh, and, and yeah, so I've got like... And how many have reached this kind of... Oh, uh, this like is the you... most advanced one. Um, I mean, I've, look, I've written dozens of like short films and I'm always writing, you know. Um, you know, Gemma and I 
the, our partnership and we're a production company is I'm the words, she's the pictures. So I do all the writing. She, you know, uh, is the director and the graphic designer and yeah. you know, editor and all that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, so, you know, last a couple of weeks ago, I wrote and shot a, a web series just because I was like, I had a mate in town who's a great actor. I was yeah. like, I'm just going to write you something. And so I went and shot that a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, written a, directed a bunch of short films. Awesome. Um, and I've written about, I've got about four feature film screenplays. So, right. Uh, Blackwood's the most advanced. I've got another one that I'm just working on now and then I've got another two that are sort of, they're a bit more ropey. They're just, they're, you know, they're, they're early, early drafts. Who, who would you say um, uh, of this, you know, like the Taylor Sheridan for someone is that I, mm. I, if I, when I write. Yeah, I, I, could, tr- I could see you're very Taylor Sheridan. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> yeah. Like Sam Shepard and those yeah. kind of guys, like that's my, yeah, yeah, I, I, I love it. Who, who is kind of, do you, do you follow anyone's um, suit or do you love any particular form I of writing? I really, um, yeah, yeah. I, oh God, I've forgotten his name now. Um, which I love him so much I can't remember his name. <laughs> so I had a bit of a late night at MIFF last night. <laughs> uh, Jeff Nichols. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's my, he's my current like cinematic crush. I just love, uh, I think he's just such a subtle, confident filmmaker and he does stories that have just a hint of genre in them. They're yep. generally human drama with a nice flourish of genre. So, like, Take Shelter, I think, is an incredible film. Yeah, with Michael uh, Shannon. Midnight, and special, and Midnight Special with uh, Michael Shannon and, and Joel Edgerton. Yeah. Um, he did, uh, uh, what was that other one with Joel Edgerton? Was that, uh, Beloved or loved? Or, or loving. Loving, that's it. Yeah, with the true story of the... I just think he's great. And yeah. I think what he does really well... I've, I've downloaded all his screenplays that I can offline and I study them because I just think the dude is a sensational... He just creates drama. I tend to overwrite. I'm very wordy, as okay. you can tell. I don't shut up. <laughs> um, you know, and the great thing of working with Jem, having a collaborative relationship with Jem, is she's very visual. So she's very good at saying, I think you could say the same thing. Yeah. With no dialogue. With a shot. If you just do this. Yeah. You know, you want to express that this person has lost their faith. Instead of a monologue, why don't you just have a shot of a broken crucifix? Or yeah, yeah, like yeah, that. true. Do you think it's interesting that there's also like, in, in terms of Jeff Nichols, he uses Michael Shannon and Joel Edgerton and those guys that he can then... Muses. Yeah, muse over and kind of go, okay, well, I've seen your face. I know who you are emotionally and Well, mentally. so this web series that I, I wrote and shot um, a couple of weeks ago. Literally, I have this friend, uh, Richie Pyros. I'm not sure if you know Richard. No, He's no. a fantastic actor. He works a lot. He lives in London, works a lot with the RSC over there. And Far was, out. I uh, uh, did a lot of shows at the STC, you know, until he left about six years ago. But... He's just one of the most talented actors and criminally underseen in Australia. Like, he does a lot of stage work. He was in Hacksaw Ridge. Um, he played Teach in Hacksaw Ridge. Across the... Yeah, um, if but I see his face, I'll be like, oh, yeah, he did yeah, this. Yeah. And I've probably seen him on stage a yeah. bunch of times. I'm sure, yeah. He's just brilliant. Anyway, um, he's just he's just this guy that uh, I just throw things to and then he just runs with them and it just makes me laugh so much. And so <laughs> we were in London about two months ago and we've been saying, let's just make something, let's just make something, let's just make something. We always say it. And then I was like, no, it's, this is it. Dude. Like, when you come back to Sydney, we're going to fucking do it. I don't care how we... And so... I just sort of sat down and just like forced myself to come up with something that we could shoot with no budget in a couple of days and I, I hit upon it which is basically and again I don't want to give it away but no, basically no, no. he's a life coach he's a life coach his own life is falling apart <laughs> and the thing was right so I wrote I basically wrote six 
five-page scripts in two days. So I wrote like, you know, 30 pages, like a, a sitcom in two days. Yeah. But the thing was, once I... Because I had Richie come over and we plotted out the six the episodes. kind of arc and where it was going to go. And, and we started... We came with ideas. And then I would just throw him stuff. And I said, can you just like improvise on that, improvise on that? And then I'd listen to him. And once I got the sound of it in my head, I could not stop writing for him. Like... It became a joy to write for because I just started writing things that I think would be great to hear him do. Yeah, yeah. So I imagine for Jeff Nichols with Michael Shannon or Joel Edgerton or Scorsese and De Niro or Scorsese and DiCaprio, Leo, and yeah. You know, once you get see the thing is I don't know if you're the same when you write. Do you, you write? I write. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's some, you can't help that vanity thing of putting yourself in the lead role. One hundred percent. And I think it's I think that's fine. And you should, because that's a great way to great you know, goodwill hunting it and write yourself yeah. a, an amazing role. But I do think there is something incredibly liberating about writing for someone who is so far from you. Yeah. Because you're not burdened down by how would I say this? How does this make me look? Is this the right way? Yeah. All I knew was if I want to hear Richie say diarrhea. <laughs> <laughs> like I don't care the context. <laughs> I just think hearing those that word come out of his mouth. <laughs> And you know what? It was fucking hilarious. It fucking worked. And he was so up for it too. That was the great <laughs> thing. I mean, this is the other thing that I really uh, – because I've, I've directed in the past but I haven't really – this was the most kind of intensive because we had two days to shoot it. He yeah. was flying back to London. And so I was literally giving him – And was that stressful then or was it, or was it, it an was enjoyment like to was, be exhilarating on the run? It was exhilarating. Yeah. But it was stressful because – Richie's a great actor and yeah. very serious about it, even when he's doing this stupid thing that we came up with. Between mates that it's just yeah. like, yeah, okay. So I would give him these pages nothing is for nothing, on the you know, day like, yeah. and like they were monologues, you know, and complicated monologues, dialogue specific monologues. Yeah. I was thinking we were going to improvise a lot of it, but he just liked the writing. So he said, no, I'm just going to do it as you've written. Yeah. But and then, then you were going, oh, Jesus. He had to find, and you would understand this, a way into it because he's like, I just, I, it can't be silly for silly's sake. Yep. It can't be stupid for stupid's sake. I have to believe it. Yep. Like, what does this mean? And at one stage, we'd been shooting for two days. We're losing light. I just needed to get this shot. Otherwise, this episode. And we just like, we're at loggerheads because he's like, mm, it's not working. And I'm like, I get it, man. I get it's not working. Yeah. But this is not going to work if the sun goes down because it's not going to match any other fucking yeah, shots. Yeah. And so we just were like going back and forth. But I totally respected his process. Like, I respected... We eventually got what we needed. We had yeah. to change locations. We couldn't shoot outside because <laughs> it went turned to nighttime. But but it was what for me was really exciting was like this is why I I got into this. Yeah, you know, not just filmmaking, but podcasting, writing. Uh, like I love creative collaboration. I love that you've come around and you want to talk about ideas. I love that. We can put something out there and build on that. Yeah. And then your skill set can bring something to it. My skill set can bring something to it. And there is there is no kind of – it's not at the stage where there's this jealousy or ownership over it. It's no. just the joy of creating. You're a musician. I imagine – I'm not a musical at all, but I imagine that's the joy of music. I, I, I love – for me, playing other people's songs is the greatest honour. Right. Because you know, I, I really enjoy writing my own stuff, sure, but I get paid to play other people's songs. That's literally how the bills get paid and I like that. Because I get to invent and discover their songs and also discover their meaning and discover where they've come from and who they are as an artist and pay my respective tribute to that. And I think that's it. Same as when you're reading a script. Like mm. when you read a script and you, and you can honour 120 pages of someone's blood, sweat and tears. Yeah. Or um, when you're on set with someone, you can feel the director really putting something in and asking you to interpret it through their perspective and to step out of your own vanity shoes yeah. and to put on a fucking character. And, and to speak this vessel. Yeah. And it's a really beautiful thing to go, 
oh, fuck. Like, I was watching Glendon Ivan on set with Safe Harbor Man, and I, I spoke about this with Jack in the last thing, but I'd go mm. to set and just fucking watch the man mm. because I loved watching him be the vessel of the first audience plus the director. Do you know, I worked on Glendon Ivan's first ever shoot. No. I worked, I was a runner at Exit Films, which is a production company in Melbourne, and he was there as a commercial director. And this would have been like 2000. Yeah. And he got a, an, a it was an ad for a company. It was kind of like pre-Amazon, Amazon. It was a company where you were, uh, the ad, the thrust of the ad was, why would you go out shopping when it's safer to buy online? And so <laughs> this ad, we shot it around the Melbourne streets of Melbourne. The ad was meant to be someone carrying boxes out of a department store and they step into dog shit. And then it's like, you know, why risk it? Buy online. Yeah, it's safer online. So I was the runner. And they were like, oh, Charlie, like uh, the props department, they forgot to bring the fake dog shit. Can you find rustle some, up some dog shit? <laughs> you find some dog and shit I'm like, Charlie. but I'm in the city. There are no dogs in the city. Yeah, and people are clean within uh, the city because there's lots of people around. Yeah, you I'm not like... going to find any dog shit. So I went to this – there's like six in the morning. I go to this 7-Eleven on Exhibition Street and I like I buy like a Chiquito and a picnic and I put it in a hot dog microwave <laughs> in like a plastic container and make this turd, like right? Chicken. Like like this, this this melted chocolate turd. And I go running back to set and I put it on the ground. They call action. The actress steps in it. They call cut. But then they call cut and it cools out and it goes all crumbling. So I have to scrape the chocolate off her shoe, put it back in this thing, go running back to Exhibition Street. Like cook up this. And the dude behind the counter watched me do this like, like half a dozen times like... This fucking dude is high. Yeah. <laughs> Just resetting the shit. Yeah. Reset shit, please. Thank yeah. you. Quiet on set. I, I, caught, up, I caught up with Glen, uh, one of Glendon's old producers that when I was brilliant. in London and I and she was producing that shit and I reminded her of that and she was like, oh, yeah. So, <laughs> she had this vague memory. I'm like, you see, that's the thing about perspective. You don't remember that. That was like a fucking defining moment of my yeah. year. It's the node. I don't think I want to do this. <laughs> <laughs> this is humiliating. There, I, I was, I, what was I listening to? I was listening to, um, oh, the, it was, uh, and just on that, like, before we go, we we're up to the oh, three-quarter hour. Well, no, we're good, we're oh, good. Okay, good. But, uh, like, just before we go, just to, so the discussion of ideas, like, thank you, first of all, for coming in and having given me the chance well, to, you to do this. Well, you came I'll be honest, I didn't no, do I anything. <laughs> you came to my I hotel. came to your mind. Yeah. But, you know, we're, we're mates, but also I think there's a different thing when people can actually selflessly kind of share some stuff, and, and it's a really special thing to do, and, Tofop um, and what you guys are doing with the two men, like just to the sharing of ideas and having those guys on the edge of the mountains, kind of like looking at us young guys going like, come on, mate, you can go. <laughs> right. Like I, th I thank you guys. Oh, good. Oh, like, yeah. So, I mean, look, if, if, if the, yeah, I think the point you're trying to make is if we can do it, anyone can. No, no, <laughs> I, no I mean it. Which like, is like, I agree. No, yes. Yeah, so, and then like the, the philosophy stuff is beautiful because yeah. you've Well, that's got, a different kettle that's of fish. A totally that's a totally different classy. kettle of fish. That's Will being, that's Will fucking working. Being in his, <laughs> Five-star, top-shelf, <laughs> award-winning <laughs> podcaster. I'm the guy he fucking hangs out with and is like an idiot. <laughs> I bring him down to my level. <laughs> you know, come down and hang out here, buddy. Yeah. But before we go, yeah. is there anything that you feel like, you know, that that you want to that you want to do personally or, or pick up personally or learn or glean um, in, you know, something that we want to put into tool bag for the next five years and what would it be? You know, like for uh, me, I'd pick up. Well, a, yeah, you know what? I think I want to learn how to edit. That's that's oh, yeah. that's the next thing. I mean, I I do some real basic editing for Tofop. I cut together these videos and stupid little videos and stuff. But having shot that web series, and like I just edit on iMovie, which is like my simple film editing. Yeah, program. yeah, yeah. I'm with you. And uh, I was cutting it together, and I and 
I really enjoyed what I'd shot and I, and I really was like, oh, I could do so much more with this. But I realized I was limited by the program. It's very rudimentary. Um, so like Gemma said, well, I'll teach you how to use Premiere. And, you know, Premiere is like the professional standard editing software. Yeah. And from that, it just enables you to do so much more in terms of like visual effects and, um, you know, you can export you can export high um, high quality files to then you know take to a post production facility to get sound mixed on yeah all that kind of stuff yeah so I, I this is that this is where I'm trying to gear myself what I'd like to be doing in the next five years is actually just creating more of my own work like I love acting I'll always love acting but you know it's you are the last port of call like yeah. everyone else is getting that that job up and running and then they cast it right. Yeah. Very few actors who start a project. Yeah. That, you know, you've got to be very powerful for that. So I just n have never been comfortable waiting for the phone to ring. Yep. But I think that I am now at a point where, you know, I have an audience. Um, you know, they seem to want more content. The stuff we're putting out there, people like. I mean, I'm writing comic books at the moment. That, yeah. You know, I, like, it's so uh, there's just stuff that I really am into that I just want to. I enjoyed producing when I was a producer, but. I never really, I'm not, I think I'm more of a creative producer. I think, yep, yep. sure, I can do contracts and, you know, book, uh, booking crew and negotiating, all that kind of stuff. But I'm, yeah. I don't like that. No. But I love big ideas. I love executing ideas. I love finding other creatives and bringing them in. I love sitting around and going, fuck, you know, you know what we need for this? It would be this, you know? And then you just think, oh, my God, I met this dude. And, yeah. You know, and then you get the right musician or the right artist and or the right visual effects clicks. artist, whatever the fuck it is. That is what I love. And so... You know, I just I would love to just create more of my own work, become like a shit hot editor, <laughs> <laughs> where I don't need to kind of outsource that because I think you know they say that you make a film three times, right? The writing of it, the shooting of it, and the cutting of yeah. it. Yeah. And I think that well, I can do the first two. Yeah. But need to know. The Let's third. pick it up. Yeah, but whether or not you know. No, brilliant. Uh, uh, you know, it, it'll probably just be more dinky web series. <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> well, I can't wait to see the comic book, mate. I'm I'm, I'm hanging out for it, but mate. Thank you for the chat. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime. I really appreciate it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, there we go. There we have it. That's the second episode of The Good Thief. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Joel Jackson. If you have any questions, comments, ideas or queries, please drop me a line at joeljacksonofficial at gmail.com or follow the story online on Instagram at joeljacksonofficial. My next guest on the podcast is Ed Oxenbold, a young Australian star of the screen, just recently starring in Wildlife alongside Jake Gyllenhaal and Kerry Mulligan. It's going to be a great chat. We chatted to him here at the Melbourne International Film Festival. So tune in. See ya.